0: is unusual among mainline clergy for his understanding of the importance of personal mystical experience and how it can contribute to the vitality of traditional worship. Timothy became rector of Advent Episcopal Church in Sun City West, Arizona, in September 2016. Timothy and his family moved to Arizona in late 2007, when he became canon to the ordinary for Bishop Kirk Smith. Prior to arriving in Arizona, Timothy served as rector of St. James Episcopal Church in Greenville, South Carolina, and from 1996 to 2000, he served as school chaplain at Heathwood Hall Episcopal School, a K-12 college prep school in Columbia, South Carolina, while also priest in charge of St. Barnabas Episcopal Church in rural Jenkinsville, South Carolina, one of the five historic African-American missions in the Episcopal Diocese of Upper South Carolina. Timothy graduated with a Master of Divinity degree in 1992 from Seabury Western Theological Seminary in Neveston, Illinois, and he first became interested in near-death experiences while serving as a chaplain during seminary CPE training when he read the book Closer to the Light by Dr. Melvin Morris. Since then, he has read extensively in the area of NDEs and was privileged to get to know Reverend Howard Storm after reading his classic book on a His NDE, My Descent into Death. Howard Storm led a quiet day at Timothy's church on the first Saturday of Advent 2016, and the next day shared the story of his NDE with a larger community in an open talk given at Advent Episcopal Church. Canon Timothy hopes to begin an IONS chapter in the Northwest Valley of Phoenix later this year, uh, meeting on Sunday afternoons at the church. Timothy, welcome to NDE Radio.
1: Thanks, Lee. It's great to be with you, and, and great to be a guest on your program.
0: Well, it's wonderful to have you. Um, I wanted to start by asking, you know, based on a Gallup poll, it's estimated there are more than 770 near-death experiences a day in this country alone, and yet most ministers and priests don't like to discuss the subject, even when it happens to one of their own parishioners. Why do you suppose that's so?
1: Well, um, it depends on the kind of church uh, the minister serves. I think um, I think most mainline ministers probably wouldn't feel too threatened by a parishioner coming to speak to them about having had a near-death experience or any kind of a mystical experience. Uh, but churches that might be more uh, fundamentalist uh, or more you know conservative evangelical. Might see that as a threat to biblical authority in someone's life, but right? that's showing how little they know about the presence of mystical experiences that are in scripture. You know, you were mentioning um, this in one of your uh, podcasts earlier about why churches should talk about NDEs. You know, Paul certainly uh, records in Second Corinthians an NDE experience and. I've heard a lot of evangelical and fundamentalist ministers kind of step lightly around that and not know what to say to it. But your comment that that probably was the influence behind 1 Corinthians 13, I think, was a really great connection for me to hear, because I think you might be right about that, the, the primacy of love. And that's another thing I think – um that ministers might find it uh, to be threatening is that here's someone in their church having a personal experience with God that might uh, go against something that they were teaching or outside of the scripture. And I think people find that threatening. Mm.
0: Well, I know uh, um, many ministers have turned off people who've had near death experiences and they subsequently have left their churches. And I think even where a minister is mildly interested, uh, some NDEers have found the um, the traditional religion that they they belong to didn't meet their needs, and I'm wondering how can that be? Um, how how can the church be further opened up in a way that that uh, people will say, oh yes, this fits right in. <laughs> this is this is exactly my NDE experience is exactly what I I believed in what I was being taught.
1: Well, I think uh, for a minister, and I'm speaking personally because I am one and you are one, um, yeah. you might have become one as a result of your own NDE. I did not have that uh, privilege of having an NDE. But being open enough to read about it and to be pretty convinced by the testimonies that were in some of the literature that I've read, M- Melvin Morris's book about these children that he met in the hospital who had NDEs is, is extremely convincing, particularly since he was, he was skeptical. I think he wanted to write the book to kind of disprove it. And if I'm not mistaken, it's been a long time since I've seen that book, Lee, but I believe he kind of set out to, to show that these were bogus and he wound up being very convinced by the evidence of the testimony of these children who experienced Jesus or God. And yet had no experience of Jesus or God prior to their NDE, and yet they come back talking about it. That's pretty convincing. And then I, because I know him so well, I think Howard Storm's book, uh, My Descent into Death, would be a great place for any minister to, to start. Because here's a gentleman who was an atheist. and I mean, he was a paint-blistering-off-the-walls profanity atheist
0: who, <laughs> who
1: really didn't have any listening for God or and thought people who believed in God were crazy. And to go through the profound uh, experience that he describes in his book or, or on several talks that you can get from INs from previous conferences, and then to see the direct effect it had on his life, the change it made in his life, to the degree that his wife divorced him because she said to him, I don't even know you anymore. You're not the man I married. And and he had to accept that because that was her choice. But, um, you know, it's really convincing. And if you ever met Howard, and I think you have, this is one of the most humble and godly and mystical people I've ever met in my life. And I believe that that's pretty convincing. You know, there's a text that says, by your fruits, people will know that you're a follower of Jesus. And I think Howard's the fruit of Howard's life, and he would give all glory to God because that's where he's coming from as a UCC pastor. But his life, the change that it made in his life, was enough for me to, to think that there's something very real here. And, and the way he talks about meeting Jesus, knowing Jesus, and knowing Jesus since his NDE, is extremely convincing and very biblical and I would have you know people who doubt that I would have serious I would have serious concerns about what they're what they're about really because I think people are afraid of losing control you know losing mm-hmm. control of their congregation perhaps or people in it I th-
0: I think that's probably one of the real problems um You know, you're right. Fundamentalists, you mentioned earlier, like to talk about the Bible as being the only true source of God's message to us. But they don't go into uh, how did the Bible get to the people that wrote it down, if not through uh, visions and near-death experience events like the one Paul describes.
1: Yeah, I also don't think that the people who wrote Scripture thought that they were writing a part of the Bible. Um, Because, you know, there were lots of Gospels written. and there was a, a, a calling process. You know, by the time the canon was resolved, it was like, what, third century? Before we have the actual agreement on the basic letters of the New Testament and the four Gospels that made the cut, so to speak. Um, and there was, you know, everybody else was declared a heretic. So I don't know that Paul or anybody who was... You know, Paul was just writing letters. Uh we're reading someone else's mail, if you think about it. And I don't think he thought that he was writing scripture. Um, now the gospels are a different thing. They're not biographies. They're the message. They're an encapsulation of the message of this life of Jesus. And you know, I love the definition that um Edward Skilibex, the the great um Dominican a theologian who just died, I think, a couple of years ago, he called it Jesus of Nazareth, the Crucified and Risen One. That was his miniature creed, and I use that a lot in my own preaching. Um, I think that life, you know, the Gospels were included that are in the Bible because they do talk about the crucifixion and resurrection, which is you now coming up um, next Sunday, or the crucifixion this Friday. It's Holy Week here in, in the church, and um, you know, this is a good time to be talking about this. So, yes. I, I think that those gospels were selected for that reason, but the other experiences of people, we ought to at least inform ourselves. You know, somebody was saying, I was reading the other day that the only scriptures Jesus had were the Hebrew scriptures. And at the time that he lived, um, there were several books called the Book of Enoch that were probably influential in his life and preaching. I never heard that before, but I thought that was very, uh, very keen insight. So there were some, you know, uh, extra canonical or extra books, you know, what do they call them, in between um, the deuterocanonical, the second canon of books that might have actually influenced Jesus in his life. Uh, and in some of those, uh, there there were also mystical experiences talked about.
0: Well, uh, the Book of Enoch is a very mystical book. In fact, it was so mystical that uh, I think under Greek influence, neither the Jews nor the Christians chose to keep it in their in their canon but uh it's a uh, it, it and then and then it was lost it was uh, only maintained in the episcopal I mean in the episcopal in the Ethiopian tradition and some Englishmen in the 1700s went to Ethiopia and found it copied it down and brought it back and that's the mm. only only way that uh, we even know about it today but uh there are references to it in in the in the bible and it was i think very influential in how uh Jesus um taught you know and 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 how they heard the words that he taught so uh yeah it should be probably it should be included but by the 3rd century of course the 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 influences of of its christianity having become an established religion and all that and as you say control it goes back even to that point in time and things got added and subtracted according to how they uh, were feeling on, at that time
1: true um there's several Things in the, in the New Testament that m- cause one's eyebrow to go up from time to time. And I was trying to think about this as I was anticipating our conversation this morning. There's a wonderful line from Paul about work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And I, I think there's a room in that statement for the personal encounter with God, with Jesus through the prayer life. You know, I mean, I, one of the things that I value about Coming into a liturgical tradition, because uh, I grew up fundamentalist, was baptized Presbyterian, uh, but was literally loved into the Episcopal Church by some friends who saw me at a point in my life that was quite low. And I was invited to church. There's an old joke about an Episcopalian only invites someone to church once every 22 years. So I guess I was on that. <laughs> I don't think that's true, mind you, but um but thanks to my ninth grade PE teacher, who saw me as an adult, he runs he ran the the Boys and Girls Club of America in my hometown. He invited me to church. I happened to be an Episcopal church. And Lee, you'll find this interesting. I I'm quite certain that the, what I went to the service I went to with them was Maundy Thursday, and I continued with Good Friday, the vigil, and Easter Day, and it changed my life. I mean. I was saying this yesterday um, uh, preaching before the the good I mean the before the passion gospel on Palm Sunday that experiencing Holy Week transformed my life and I was inviting people if you haven't done this walk the way of the cross this week and you you will have a profound spiritual experience if you're open your heart open your mind reflect on these stories and let the narrative and the Spirit speak to you. And I think that that's um, what a lot of churches are missing when they, you know, have stages covered in ferns and they've got rock bands up there and all that. And it's all well and good. It's all entertaining. But the original story told the way that we get through the Scriptures Works pretty well. We had uh, six people taking different parts and reading the Passion Gospel from Mark yesterday. Mm. It was just amazing to to just let it kind of wash over you, you know. I know.
0: And the I, gospel the gospel reading yesterday was quite long, wasn't it? Well,
1: yeah, and that's okay. I,
0: I mean, oh, it was terrific. I,
1: I don't make any apology for the length <laughs> of during Holy Week because you know the church. Sometimes people say the church asks so little from its followers. Well, there's one week a year where I really. Expect my people, be in church this week, give one week back to God and let it transform you because those stories work on you that way. And I, and that's what I love about the liturgical church, you know, mm-hmm. is that, that we allow the space for that. We had so many comments from people yesterday about how, how powerful that service was. And that's what transcendent worship can do, you know. And that's why I like being an Episcopalian, because I think when we do our liturgy well, it helps people have a transcendent moment.
0: Right. And and yet those transcendent moments that we uh, that we love so much in the tradition are also freely available to people who have other yes. mystical experiences even to this day. Absolutely. And so, and so when you hear of uh, someone having a near-death experience that changes their life, like uh, Howard Storm's, mm-hmm. you've got to... You've got to um, take that into account as well, and sometimes that speaks to people more uh, strongly than than um, the traditional readings about Jesus, because they have heard it, you know, their whole lives, and and it's become a habit for them. But something as startling as uh, a storm's experience can can open their eyes again.
1: Yeah, there's another there's another great um, set of books out there by George Ritchie. His his mm-hmm. near death. In fact, he was the guy I think that. Um, Ray Moody met and began to be inquiring about near-death experiences. That's uh,
0: that's right. Yeah. yeah,
1: and George Ritchie's books uh, are really quite moving. Particularly, I'm looking over my bookshelf. Order to Return, which is the old, it's the reprint version of Return from Tomorrow, and those are also very profound uh, experiences of um, near death. And shoot, about anybody who has one, one of the biggest things uh, that transforms them is they are no longer afraid of death whatsoever, yes. you know. Now, Jerry Seinfeld said, you know, death is the number one fear in America, even more so than public speaking. He said, just can you imagine? He says, at every funeral, most people would rather be the person in the coffin than the person giving the eulogy.
0: <laughs> wow. And then, and then you look at those kids that just spoke, uh, you know, at, at the marches in Washington yes. and all around the country and how eleven-year-olds could stand up and speak with fervor because they were being so moved by the the, the horror of the deaths at their school. Um, yeah, it's, it's a it's incredible. I, I wanted to ask you in your seminary training, um, did did near-death experience ever come up in your classes?
1: No, uh, no, it didn't. Um, I mean. Transcendent worship, yes, but not near death experiences. I, I, that was completely outside. You know, and the, the reason I was looking at Melvin Morris's book while I was in CPE, which was at Lutheran General, um, your producer probably knows who that is in, in, um, in Chicago, um, Park Ridge, um, huge hospital. And, um, I was doing my CPE on the pediatric unit mm-hmm. and I had a, I had a kind of a quote unquote famous um, patient a, a young man who who was dying of leukemia and um, his father had fathered twins with another woman, not his wife they were and he was suing to have bone marrow transplanted from the twins. You might remember this in the news back in nineteen ninety he was trying to Sue to get a bone marrow donation from these little kids. I mean, they're, they're, they're not even probably a year or a year and a half old. Well, of course he lost, but that was in the news and all that. And uh, I just needed to know a little bit about, you know, do, you know, my friend, he eventually did die, but I just wanted to know more about being the youngest of six sons. I never had any younger kids around me much. So this was a whole new experience for me. And I wandered across that book and, Read it, and it was really, really transformative for me. Um, I, and I, I was able to help a young man who was going into surgery, and he was terrified he was going to die. And I tried to comfort him and say, "Look, you know, you're probably not going to die. This is a pretty cupcake surgery. But even if you did, it's going to be okay. But you're not going to die. It's going to be all right." Well, he wanna He did die. And I think in some ways, he kind of his fear kind of helped him along with that. And I don't understand that, but I'm sure he found it to be not as frightening as he was um, thinking it would be
0: well the work as a chaplain that i did uh, and it is stress is the number one killer no matter what the diseases you have when you're in the hospital if you can be calmed down and if you can get a broader picture uh... it really takes away the stress and one of the one of the tools i used constantly was telling people about near-death experiences the stories of other patients in that hospital what, uh, what they had experienced when their hearts stopped briefly. Mm-hmm. They found it so comforting because suddenly they saw that there, no matter what their faith tradition was, there is an afterlife and God loves us. And, yeah, uh, that's very comforting indeed. It, it's so important. I, um, Timothy, I want to ask you, um, Catholics acknowledge the visions of saints. Uh, they don't usually do it until the saint, <laughs> until the person has died. But, you know, they, they do acknowledge that there is a, an ongoing conversation between us and God, at least for some people. Do Episcopalians deal with visions that same way? Are there saints that, uh, that, uh, become a, uh, that, that add to the liturgy apart from the Bible?
1: Well, uh, I don't know about visions. Um there are, there is, you know, we have a, in fact, it just was approved. Um, we have a book of the calendar of saints called um a great cloud of witnesses. And, um and we use it as kind of a hall of fame of the faith, you know, and we find uh, their examples of living and perhaps dying to be exemplary for our own life, you know, and to remind us that uh we're not alone in our struggles, but also that we're, we can do what they did. I mean, most of the saints are just common, ordinary people, and this brings up a story I wanted to tell you. Um, many years ago, I was on retreat at the Benedictine Abbey, Prince of Peace Abbey in Oceanside, California. It's a wonderful place, and I was having breakfast one morning with one of the brothers there, and he was just having the time of his life, just a delightful, and this guy's really at this point probably 80-something, and he was just a delightful man with these corny jokes and just having the best time. He said, he told me a joke, and I was laughing. He said, I told that last week to Mother Teresa. And I said, come again? He goes, yeah, I had breakfast last week with Mother Teresa. This is when she was coming through the U.S. And I just find that people like who who are extremely holy or extremely free, human, down-to-earth, And that is uh, an example that we can all learn from. Don't take yourself too seriously, you know. That's Mm -hmm. Howard Storm. Howard never takes himself too seriously. Neither did this particular monk. You know, uh, if you got a minute, I had a really interesting experience at that abbey. It was my one of my first uh, mystical experiences ever. Um, I'd gone to Compline in the chapel that night, and Compline in the Roman Catholic church is virtually identical to what we have in the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer. I think um, the seventy-nine prayer book revision, we just borrowed it. You know, there was so much liturgical sharing then following Vatican II. Yes. And um, so he said, let us confess our sins against God and our neighbor, and we all went silent. And there was this huge, huge icon of of Christ uh, you know, seated on the teaching chair with his two fingers up in the air and his finger and thumb touching. And I just kind of kind of uh, put myself into a trance on that. And Lee, I hit a place of silence that I never hit before in my life. I have never experienced quiet like that. There was no monkey mind. There was no thoughts in the back of my head. There was no making the shopping list or thinking what I had to do before. I mean, it was just silence. And to this day, I have no idea how long we waited before we launched into the prayer. It could have been... Ten seconds. It could have been ten hours. I literally had a out of time experience. Never had that happen before. Oh. Uh, just going into staring at this icon and just being open and quiet. And see, that is what anybody can do. And that's what I think some churches are missing out on.
0: Yes, uh, the the uh, message is not in the thunder, but in the in the, the quiet <laughs> voice. <laughs>
1: exactly. Exactly. <laughs> How many people to... have you interviewed? How many people have you interviewed have said that in oh. silence?
0: There, you know? <laughs> Well, yes, and of course, the communication that happens in a near-death experience when you're on the other side is is a telepathic experience. It's not a sound at all, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. although they do acknowledge music, and so there's something like sound. But um, I, I, in fact, I'm going to have to talk to someone who's who was there about that difference. What? What? How did you and ent- how did you? Uh, Perceive the music as opposed to perceiving the the communication. And speaking of communication, I wanted to ask you while there's still a little time. um, You know the phrase, the communion of saints? Yes. Followed by the forgiveness of sins, etc., and the resurrection of the body. Doesn't it acknowledge that the dead can communicate with us?
1: Well, I think, um, no, I actually never heard anybody go that way with that, but I don't see any reason why not, because as you know, I had an after-death communication from my father.
0: Exactly. Um, I was just I told, going to ask you about that. Yeah.
1: Um, we were at the closing Eucharist of uh, my curcio when I went on it and. Um, it was in this wonderful chapel at Ancilla Dominé, this Roman Catholic uh, convent in um, Donaldson, Indiana, and at this uh, Eucharist, we were, you know, around the altar, you know, the team and the candidates, and we were singing "I'm the Bread of Life." And I got the overwhelming sense uh, that my father was there, and this was 1985. He died the year before, and I thought, no, I'm a rational person. No, it's not possible. And then that sense overwhelm me, like a blanket being thrown over my body, my shoulders from behind. The, the, The presence of my father was so palpable, I could have smelled him. That's what it felt like. He was there. And what I got from him, the message was, it is good for you to be here. And what that means to the listener is, I was breaking away from the church of my parents, breaking away from Presbyterian Church, went into the Episcopal Church, became you know, uh, and I was worried about what would my father think or my mother think. My mother's very supportive, but my father was saying to me, it's okay that you're here. I'm glad that you're here. It's yes. good for you to be here. It was a powerful, powerful feeling and I'll never forget it. And that was, um, that was a great comfort to me, uh, and came completely unexpected. Didn't ever, I wasn't even thinking about my father and yet he shows up at this moment in my life, and it was uh, very powerful for me.
0: See, that's what I call the communion of saints.
1: Yeah, that's pretty good. I like that. (laughs) That's a a good example of that. I may borrow that, and I'll give you credit for
0: it. Anytime. Uh, Timothy, tell us about how you plan to start your IONS group.
1: Well, I'm working with the uh, Arizona representative, uh, Chuck, and we're going to figure out how to promote this. We've got some really good publications. We're going to do this in the Northwest Valley of Phoenix because right now most of the meetings are either in Tucson or in Gilbert. And Gilbert and Sun City West, uh, Surprise, Sun City, all that, that's a long way apart. If people don't know the the geography of Arizona, that's an hour or more. And of course, people out in the Northwest Valley are largely retired and don't like to drive that far. And so uh, having a meeting of INs out in our part of the Valley, I think will be very helpful. I also know that um, in my own parish, there's been a couple of people who've told me they've had NDEs. And when Howard was there, we had over 30 people out to hear, some from the church, some from the community. So uh, with your help, Lee, and the, and the help of uh, Chuck and uh, the organization INs, hopefully we can get this launched very soon and start having a monthly meeting out in the Northwest Valley. So if you're listening and you're in Arizona, you know, especially in Phoenix uh, or in the, near the northwest part of the valley, please, you know, uh, keep your ears open and, and look for that in, their, in the paper the independent.
0: Yeah, uh, you're in a perfect place to start something like this because with Chuck bringing through speakers uh, who speak in Tucson and then in another part of Phoenix, they'll be available for your group as well. So you'll have some very powerful speakers there, I'm sure. Yeah.
1: That's the idea is to, 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 you know, to go back to back. I think that works great, actually. I look forward to working with him. And maybe when you're out in, and, and you're part of the you know, Arizona, maybe you can slip down some Sunday and be with us.
0: Absolutely. Well, yeah. Timothy, how, how can people get in touch with you if they want to talk, um, about that or anything else?
1: Well, um, the easiest way would be email me, uh, timothy.dombeck at gmail.com. In dombeck is D-O-M as in Mary, B as in boy, E-K. There's no C in dombeck. Timothy, like the book of the Bible, that's exactly where I was named from. But um, be happy to talk with anybody about maybe being a part of getting uh, IAMs going in that part of uh, the northwest valley of Maricopa County. It'd be nice.
0: Terrific, terrific. Well, listen, I'm sadly we're out of time, but I want to thank you, Timothy, for for being on the show and for sharing your thoughts with us today.
1: Well, thanks for having me, and thanks for what you do, because I think your program is vital to help other people understand the importance of recognizing these NDE experiences and for what they are and the transformation that they can bring.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you so much. If uh, our audience would like to listen to this show again or any of our past shows, just go to nderadio.org and click on the Past Shows button. And for information about IANs, go to their website, iands.org. And join us again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.